0: If you have any questions for me or my guests, please email me at grant.mcgaugh, spelled M C G A U G H, at five star BDM, B for brand, D for development, and for masters.com. Now let's begin with our next five star episode on Follow the Brand. Thank you, and thank you for joining us on another episode on Follow the Brand. I am your host, Grant McGall, and I'm going to introduce our very special guest today, Ms. Andrea Price from Toledo, Ohio, in which she has in the past served as a healthcare CEO in a number of different hospitals throughout the nation. Currently, she serves as a strategic advisor to RMP Group LLC, and in the past, she has served as the president and chief executive officer of Mercy Hospital in in Toledo. And Previously, she was the executive vice president and chief operating officer for Sparrow Health System in Lansing, Michigan, and prior to that, she served in senior executive roles at Hurley Medical Center in Flint, Michigan, and Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. She is board certified in healthcare management and a fellow in the American College of Healthcare Executives. She also served as the national president for the National Association of Health Services Executives from 2011 to 2013. And in 2008, she was named as one of the top 25 minority healthcare executives by Modern Healthcare. She was also named in 2013 the Top 100 Hospital and Health System Executives You Ought to Know by Becker's Review. She also served on the Toledo Lucas County Port Authority, in which she is the Chair for Human Resources and and on the Community Committee and Vice Chair for the Finance Committee. And she serves on the Lucas County Citizens Leverage Review Committee as well. Ms. Price was appointed in 2019 by U.S. Treasury Department to the Taxpayer Advocacy Panel representing Ohio. She received her B.A. degree from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and M.H.A. degree from Tulane University in New Orleans. So without further ado. Welcome and welcome to the Follow the Brand show. This is your host, Grant McGaugh, and today we have a special, special guest. She has become one of my favorite people to talk to. Anytime I really need to have an in-depth conversation about anything about healthcare, healthcare administration, some of the different associations, she is wonderful. And the fact that she's now going to join me on this podcast and frame her story in a way that you can truly understand what personal branding is all about you will truly understand what it takes to be a C-suite executive in today's world. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Andrea Price and let her tell a little bit more about herself and her story as we go through this podcast. So, Ms. Price?
1: Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, delighted uh, to be here.
0: Yes, yes. And so tell me more about your start. You grew up in Toledo, Ohio. Is that right? So, I I I grew
1: up and I was born and raised in Flint, Michigan. I live in Toledo, Ohio now. I was born and raised in Flint, Michigan, which has made national news in the past. And I attended high school in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh
0: Aha, things I did not know. My parents are southern. Yeah, yeah, this is good. So you went to high school in Atlanta, Georgia?
1: Yes. Is that right? Yes,
0: Give me some context around that. How do you migrate from Atlanta, Georgia back to the, the Midwest?
1: Sure. well, i I, I think the, my biggest startle was moving from Michigan to Atlanta. okay. Um, and that was a southern atmosphere is different. You know, I visited in the summer my relatives, my grandparents, but to actually relocate back there was different. I was teased because I had a northern accent. And uh, which kind of took me by surprise. And people used to say, "Get her to talk, get her to talk." You know? <laughs> but anyway, it was it was a great experience. I wouldn't trade it, you know, for the world. Um, it was also the first time that I got to go to all black high school because I in Michigan, I, it was usually only one or two of us in a classroom, and so I I was like, "Wow, everyone here is black." <laughs> I just wasn't used to that. And so I didn't go willingly because I was point guard on the junior varsity basketball team and I was a sprinter on the track team. So I was not happy that my parents decided to relocate back to Atlanta. And so once I graduated from high school, I was determined to get back to Michigan. And so I applied and was accepted to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And so that's how I got back here.
0: Oh, that is a great, great story. She, you know, the, the prodigal child ends up back in uh, Michigan. You know, go blue. We got to put some blue out there, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so, a, as an undergrad in Michigan, I mean, were you thinking healthcare at the time, administration at the time, and give, give us some? No, I
1: was not. Uh, at Michigan, I majored in psychology. They had like one of the top ten psychology programs in the world. Also, Michigan had a program where once you matriculated with your undergraduate degree, the master's and the doctorate degree were combined. So if you got accepted into the graduate program, you would get your master's and your PhD. And so I thought I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. During my junior year, microeconomics, Paul Feldstein, who's kind of famous, but he um, he was teaching in the School of Public Health and the Health um, Services Administration Program. And, um, but they also had a shortage of economists, and so he taught undergrad. And for some reason, he walked up to me and he said, Andrew, have you ever thought about hospital administration? I'm like, no, you, you need a degree for that? And he said, why don't you come over to the School of Public Health It's right across the street from the main campus, And, you know, I can introduce you to the students. I can introduce you to the dean of a mission. And I was like, okay. And I followed him up. I went over, met with the dean of a mission. Uh, They let me interview students. I ended up writing an English paper about the Phila Hospital administration, got an A on it. And that's how I got interested in it. That summer between my junior and senior year, I stayed in Ann Arbor. And I volunteer at University Hospital, is now, it, you know, U- University Medicine, but it was just called University Hospital. And I was like, you know, I think I am interested. And so I applied to graduate school. Man, that's, that is- that was, that's how I got started in the field. I didn't even know it existed.
0: Well, a lot of people didn't. You know, hospital mm-hmm. administration, I remember my uncle uh, took that up and actually went to a school in Atlanta, Georgia for hospital administration. Okay. And I believe it was uh, not Georgia Tech. I think there's another one down there. And I Emory? Keep, it, it may have been. You know, okay. It's been a, a number of years. Barbara, that's the first time I had heard about hospital administration as a curriculum. I said, oh, I'm going to be a hospital minister." He ended up being a lawyer, but that's where he did his undergrad. He ended up going back to Creighton and got his law degree. But that was his track, right? So I'm just very interested in your story. So you go from University of Michigan, you get into healthcare administration, then you go to Tulane University. Yeah, I went to Tulane for
1: my master's degree. Yes. In New Orleans.
0: New Orleans. Okay. All right. You had a little bit of spice in your life.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's another story. I went to New Orleans and after three weeks, I decided uh, New Orleans wasn't for me and that I was going home. True story. I packed up my foot locker back then, I'm telling my age, we have foot lockers <laughs> that we travel with packed up my green foot locker and told my two roommates one was getting her PhD in psychology and the other one was in med school. And I said, I'm sorry, I, I cannot live here. It's too hot, it's too humid. You have chameleons walking in the house. I was like, you know, and you're counting the mosquito population. I don't even know how you do that. But anyway, I can't do it. And so I packed up, called my parents. They were like, okay, if that's what you want to do, honey, you know, you're go. And then I sat there and I did something really plain and old fashioned. Took out my, my pad, drew a line, pros and cons. And I was like, oh my goodness, I have a liberal arts degree from University of Michigan. I'm not going to make any money. I got to stay here and get this master's degree. And so the next morning I called my parents and said, I'm not coming home. They're like, well, I'm like, no, I can't. There's no way. I, I, I just cannot. I told my roommates, of course they were thrilled because I paid one third of the rent. And so I end up saying, and I was like, you know what? Humans are adaptable. If people can come from different countries and can't speak English, and I'm in the same country and I'm complaining about how hot and human it is. I yeah. <laughs> was like, you can handle this.
0: And so I end up saying. Man, that see, that's a wonderful story. And I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that can, you know, re- listen to that story, relate to it on their own, like at that pivotal times in their life where there was a choice to make. Yes. And hopefully they made the right choice. I think you did make the right choice. You did get your master's degree. And yes. it took you from, now, did you go from New Orleans to children's out in D.C.? Or? Yep,
1: I went to, yeah, uh, from New Orleans. Um, um, what happened when I was in New Orleans, my last semester, second year of grad school, I became extremely ill. And I was told that I was going to die. I was told they had no idea what was wrong with me. First, they thought I was anorexic. Then they thought it was psychological and it ended up being lupus. And I was discharged from the hospital on Easter Sunday morning. My parents, everyone came to see me because they told them I was going to die. Then they told me, oh, you can you cannot go into the of Hospital Administration. It's too stressful. Stress will cause your lupus to flare up. And you know what? You won't be able to have any children because giving birth would cause your lupus to, to flare up. I said to them, I said, I looked at them and I said, No, nah, I don't think so. And I have loans. I am going into this field. I am gonna do that. And so when I um um Know, completed school, went to Washington, DC. Um, I you know, immediately found a physician at George Washington University whose practice was black women who had lupus. And, um, and he's like, You know, I'm gonna treat you, I'm gonna listen to you. We have lab tests, but I'm gonna listen to what you tell me. He said, I was trained in Boston and we were trained to look at lab tests, but not only go by the results. So you really need to tell me what's going on. So my first summer was kind of tough because the sun is my enemy. But after that, it was no problem. And uh, of course, I got married. Of course, I have four children. Of course, I worked my way up through the career ladder to become a regional president CEO. And so that tells you anything about my personality.
0: A strong drive. Strong drive, like get out of the way if you are in the way of Andrea Price, for sure. She's like, I don't think so. This lupus, no, not going to work in hospital. No, you know, so you handled your stress, you you dealt with your situation and you became successful. I think that's that's commendable, right? Very commendable. So let let me ask you a question. If there is one thing that you wish you had known before you, you began your career, can you elaborate on that?
1: Sure. I would say the one thing I wish I'd known before I began my career was how many times I had to prove myself over and over and over again. I had no idea. I was naive. I thought that if I had the educational attainment, if I had the credentials in my field, if I'd been successful in the positions that I had the privilege to obtain, then it wouldn't be any question. And that just didn't happen. And so I was a little disenchanted because I'm thinking, but I've proven myself. Why, why are you questioning me? I mean, people would look at me and say, oh, she's black. They would look at me and say, oh, she's a woman. They would look at me and said, are you still in college? One, yes. Unfortunately or fortunately, when I started my career in DC, I looked very young. And so people assume, knowing nothing about me, that there's no way I could occupy the positions that I had because I was too young.
0: I see. I yes? see. No, that that is something. So they would try to make an assumption about you. Right. Oh. And 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 they thought those assumptions were real and you had to dig deeper I would figure within yourself, which brings me to the uh, second question in in a way of how you define your personal brand and how it helped to propel you through your career. Did you start finding at that point that you had to self-define and make sure that your reputation moved your agenda forward?
1: Oh, absolutely. I would tell you, um, I always tell people When people talk about brand, your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. I learned that early in my career. And what I learned is when I wasn't around, people said a lot of positive things about me that I didn't know they were saying. Uh, When I started my career, I became known as a doer. And that's what the president said. I said, Dora, what is that? He said, You get things done, Andrea. He said, You really do. And he said, I think people are going to always underestimate you because they're going to look at you and say, No, nah, not her. And you're going to prove them wrong every single time. And at the time, you know, you're young. You're like, Okay, done. Okay, that's what you said. But he was absolutely right every single time. And so, you know, as I progressed through my career letter. It became known that I was the one who could execute on strategic priorities, work with teams, gather people, get them done, meet deadlines, exceed, whatever. And so... That's what I was known for. So there are a lot of things I was able to do early on, young. Yeah. You know, we would have these natural disasters. They would make me in charge of the command center. And everybody's coming in, they're like, who in charge? She's in charge? And I'm directing people what to do, pick up people, where to go. I mean, you know, it's, it was just, you know, amazing. And so, you know, even when I was rounding on patients and family members, people were like, who, who, who are you again? And I was explain who I am? And why I was there, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I used to surprise the physicians. They would be rounding. And they're like, Andrea Price, why are you up so early? I'm like, the last time I checked, a hospital never closed. Why are you up so early? So I would laugh and joke with them. And so people just, you know, it kind of known that I'm a person who would show up unannounced no matter what time, no matter what day. And, uh, and you know, just have a little fun with the staff and the physicians because they don't expect people at the executive level to do that.
0: And, and that story, it kind of brings me to uh, what I'm thinking right now is that because I'm following your story. You're telling me you went from Tulane and then you went out there to uh, D.C. You get a fellowship there. And then now you're starting your life. You're getting deep into it. You're you. I think you're probably married at this point. You started to live. You know, you're starting a family and you're doing a career. What was that first career leap that you went from just a, you know, your your standard uh, generalized, uh, I want to call it worker B, but in the managerial role and then that transition? Help me frame that story, how you started to to start your trajectory toward being a CEO.
1: Sure. While I was at Children, when I completed my administrative fellowship, there was no guarantee that they would keep me on. But I worked like nobody business that 12 months to prove to them that they should keep me on. And uh, and they did. And so I became the assistant to the chief operating officer. There was a switch. um, The CEO left and then the chief operating officer became the CEO. When he did that, he promoted me to like a staff role. Um, like an assistant vice president of administrative affairs. It was still a staff role. I had no line responsibilities. And so then one day he called me in office, Sandra, I I think you're ready for line management. And totally unannounced, he started quizzing me. I'm like, Don, what are you doing? I I thought you were coming to give me an assignment. (laughs) You're interviewing me and quizzing me. And he said, yeah, I want to see if you're ready. And so afterwards he said, I think you are. And so that was my first line management role. I had five departments reporting to me, and um, and so and so now I have to learn. I'm not the person that's always doing. Now I have to delegate and work through others to get things done. And so that was a great learning responsibility of me because I learned people aren't like me. I'm one of these people. Let's get it done. What's the deadline? What's the time? What do you need to see? And people aren't like that. Not that they can't perform, but they're not going to perform in the manner in which I do. So it was once I learned that, I got promoted again and I got promoted again. And uh, I think the pinnacle for me was when the the chairman of the cardiovascular surgery department went to the president and said, I want to report to Andrea Price. And he said, excuse me, I don't Uh, think I heard you. He said, I want to put, he said you want to report to Andrea Price? He said, yes, I do. He said, she gets things done. When she say yes, she means yes. When she say no, she means no. I'm a surgeon and I like that. And I want to report to her. In fact, I'm demanding that I report to her. And he was like, okay. So the person he no longer reported to was not happy that he was reporting to me. And uh, we had a great relationship. Everyone in his department were men. And so I said, if you're going to report to me, I want you to at least, when an opening come, look for a woman as a cardiovascular perfusionist. And he said I would, he did, and he hired one.
0: That is a great story. Wonderful story. This episode is brought to you by 5 Star BDM. 5 Star BDM is a professional consulting and advisory group keenly focused on business development services for small to mid-sized businesses and entrepreneurs. Although every business is unique, they often share challenges that can be addressed through smart branding. Services include process improvement and operations, digital strategy and transformation, business intelligence, digital marketing, and personal branding. Our five-star business and personal branding company Has helped a number of professionals and organizations to optimize and grow. The result is more business, more opportunities, better reach, positive outcomes. Please visit www.5starbdm.com to learn more and view all the episodes of Follow the Brand. And it leads me to the next question I have, which which I'm seeing it, but I want you to articulate it. And that is when it comes down, and it's kind of a cliche, but people talk about this. Everyone has a superpower. What is my superpower? What do I do Ah. that's better than anyone else? Mm -hmm. But it is your signature. It it is really the signature of what I call personal branding, just like your, your DNA, just like your voice pattern, just like your fingerprint. You have something you you uniqueness about you. You've already talked about being that that doer, that, that, that strong drive. Help me just frame that story for our listeners about what your how you look at your superpower as.
1: Sure. I would say it took me a while to realize this, but after enough enough people told me, especially those who were, you know, conducting my performance evaluation and my teammates, I would say my superpower is my influence. I have the uncanny ability, I didn't know it at the time, to um, get people comfortable with where the organization wants to go, their organization goes. And so I would get them to create commitment around achieving those. And what I did was I did that through guidance and coaching. So, for example, If you report it to me and there was a report that was due to me, I will review it and give you feedback, even though it was coming to me. And so people are like, you do that? I mean, my colleague was like, like, yes, because I want them to succeed. And they were like, oh, we never thought about that. And so then it became like he or she is on Andrew's team. So throughout the hospital, People would say, oh, yeah, they report to Andrew. That's why they so good. And so it, it just created this whole thing. And, and they were like, well, how do you get your people to do what you need to do? I said, first of all, you have to be authentic. And first of all, you have to set expectations. I said, you know, I'm known in the hospital of setting very clear expectations and holding people accountable. And, you know, they like it. So, you know, so I would say my ability to influence people to do what needs to get done. That is huge. My superpower.
0: Being an influencer, especially, and you've run hospitals of thousands of people. Yes. And you've got to get buy-in because that one person that drops the ball, that could be a negative outcome for someone's life.
1: Oh, I, I mean, absolutely it can. Absolutely. I, have. Uh, you know, and I think it's just my personality. It's probably my my Southern parents and my grandparents, how they raised me and, you know, manners and this, that, and the other, and never think you better than anyone else. I don't care how much money you make or what you obtain in life, you know, treat people. And I've always done that. If you were to go to any of the hospitals that I ever had the privilege of working in, the employees will tell you everything about me. They remember me. They miss me. You know, I, to, I went to Hurley to see my mom when she had surgery. And before I could get in the door, it's like, oh, my goodness, it's Andrea Price. We missed you. And they start calling people. People running down. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, it's been so long. And so that makes me feel good that people not only remember me, but positively. And, and because I recognize them. I knew everybody name. You know, most people don't even know the person that comes in and clean their trash. Not only do I know, I know everything about them. I know where they live. I know their family members. I know this that, and the other. Because we sit there and talk. I was raised. I'm no better than anyone else. And so that's the thing. The other thing is I'm never officious. People know what my title is. I don't have to tell them that. Yeah. I mean, you, you follow me? So yeah. I, I, I'm i not that type of person. And I'll just tell you a quick story. We had a major crisis corporate wise in my last position, we had a person who felt that uh, we didn't treat his spouse very well. It was in one of my rural hospitals. And he went on a social media campaign like you wouldn't believe. And he had a petition. He created a whole webpage. He did all this stuff. He looked all of us up and the, the corporation was like, oh, my goodness, you know, what are we going to do? This is a nightmare. And the corporate office was like, well, this is what we're going to do. This is the stance we're going to take. I said, let me talk to him. They're like, no, no, no. I said, no. I said, he is, what, 90 minutes from here? I'm going to drive to where he is, and I'm going to talk to him. And they're like, Andrew, no. I said, no, I am. I called him up, and he was like, you coming here to meet with me? I said, absolutely, I am. And he said, oh, by the way, I looked you up. I'm fascinated about you. I can't believe someone like you is in the position that you're in. So if you don't mind, because I was, and I did. I drove down with him. I took the uh, ED director with me because he was angry with the ED people. Emergency department, lay yep. people say emergency room. And so uh, I took him and I went in and I said, mm-hmm. I know exactly who he is. I sized him up and I went in and I'm like, I'm just going to be Andrea. And I was Andrea and by the time we finished, he said, "You know what? I'm calling everything off." <laughs> and so when we finished, I called the corporate office and they're like, "What? How are you able to do that?" I said, I was just seeing me. I said, people know when you are genuine Are right. you disingenuous? And he knew I meant everything that I said.
0: And oh, he believed those, me. Th- those are huge qualities huge qualities. Uh, and I think a lot of times, especially now that we're dealing with COVID, we're dealing with COVID uh, uh, vaccine hesitancy. Mm-hmm. And I've had been on several different panels, and I've talked to different hospital executives. And I always want to ask that one question, is said, you know, the hesitancy is historical, for the most part. Yes. And have you truly addressed the pain? Have you really talked to the people about their experience with with healthcare. Not talking about COVID. We're not talking about the vaccine. We're right. just talking about in general what makes them hesitant. And you'll find some stories and they really, it's not like you can change what happened in the past, but at least you listen to Absolutely. It's you know, important to care. listen.
1: Yeah. Active listening is what I used to teach my team. Don't just say you listen. Active listening means you don't talk and you don't interrupt when someone is telling you their story, whether it's a compliment or whether it's a complaint. And by the when they finish, only then
0: you speak. Yeah, because now you've got the complete picture.
1: So you're, you're not
0: addressing just you know thirty percent of the situation. Right. You know you're, you're addressing all of it. And in my world, you know I'm I'm in, the, uh, in sales for the most part. And then we call it the iceberg effect. You know, if you're only seeing the top of that iceberg, you might be only seeing 30% of that problem. But most of the problem is beneath the water. Beneath, beneath absolutely. Stars. You know, so you're going to have to take a, put on some scuba gear right, and get down there and really have that individual or, or that group talk about what's really, really, truly bothering them and get to those root causes uh, to get any kind of effectual change. You probably would agree with that.
1: Oh, I, I definitely agree. Um, definitely.
0: Absolutely. So, you know, we talked about some of your qualities, and I I, I want you to articulate that though, just a little bit more. Sure. You had top three qualities that your colleagues remember about you. That if you could frame that and just succinctly.
1: Sure. It's easy <laughs> because they tell me anyway. Basically, I would say excellence, integrity. And coaching. I even coach my my colleagues, not just my team or the people to report directly to me. Excellent is because I developed the reputation mm-hmm. that whatever I do is going to be of the highest quality and it's going to have all the necessary components to get it approved. OK, secondly, in terms of integrity, I am very direct and I am truthful. And whether people, even when I know what I'm about to say, people don't want to hear, I still tell the truth. Okay. My MO throughout my career is you may not like the decisions that I made, but you're never going to say you don't know why I made that decision. And that has helped me as I prepared uh, my trajectory through my career uh, in terms of coaching, again, it goes back to my ability to inspire people to get on board and do what we need to do. Even they may start off and say, no, 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 I'm against it. And I'm like, OK, but I go back and I go back and eventually we come to some meeting, you know, some happy medium where they said, OK, I, I can do this. I think that's So I said those are the three that my colleagues were saying.
0: Those are three. Talk about personal branding. You know, when when you know your brand, you know what other people, how other people feel about you, right. how they see you. That's important. And you can frame that for yourself and use that going forward. You already made a relatable connection, you know, with, with your people. And I know you've done that. And so my question, I, and I have several questions because I think it's interesting because mm-hmm. I, I see you, you know, I see you working there at Children's in D.C. And mm-hmm. then I, wa- I want to know that feeling that you got. When you got that first CEO role, like, hey, I'm going to move from here to go to Hurley. To and you're now the CEO of a hospital. How did that feel?
1: Scary. <laughs> it was scary. You know, when I was in grad school, we were always taught that they were preparing us to be a CEO of a hospital. You know, and at the time, you know, you're young, you're 20 something and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But until you actually get in any position and then you see what actually happens, you see the rewards and the risks associated as you you climb your way up to the ladder, then you begin to think, I don't know if I really want that. I see boards getting rid of CEOs and, you know, this and the other. In fact, that's what happened to me in my administrative fellowship. I'm sitting there working my little tail off at the end of the day, working on a project. And then someone comes out and say, we've made a decision telling the the secretary because it was an executive session. And I looked at him. I said, what are you doing? He's like, they just fired the CEO. Like, what? What do you mean they find to the CEO? You know, so it's one of those things. So when I was um, um, my first CEO role, I, I wasn't sure. You know, I was the chief operating officer and I absolutely loved that role. Remember, I'm the person who can execute. I'm the right. person who can get things done. I'm the person who never misses a deadline. So, you know, I'm known for things like that. And I knew enough to know what I did not know. What I did know is the CEO and the CEO role are totally different. And I didn't appreciate that till I stepped into that role because my first CEO role was an interim role. You know, and so again, you know, I'm the first. Every position I've had, I've, I'm the first. So I'm the first. And so what happens is I see, oh, my goodness, I got all these board members I need to pay attention to. And the CEO role, I didn't have to do that. I only have to pay attention to the CEO, Right. And so then I'm like, oh, so now I'm required to be on these community boards because I'm representing the hospital, you know? And so it was, it was different. And then people automatically think when you're in the row, well, what's your vision? What, you know, what's your vision? You know, how are you going to take the hospital to the next level? And you're like, it hasn't even been 12 hours yet. (laughs) And you're asking me, what's my vision and what are my goals, you know, for the hospital? I mean, it's amazing, you know, how that worked. I learned a lot. I, I'm i telling you, I was not ready for my first position. I was not ready at all. Um, my children was young. My husband is the physician, you know, and he's working. And so you got these two professionals, you got these young kids. And I was like, never, ever home. I mean, I was always out because the hospital never closed, right? And so, um, but the second time I had the opportunity Boy, did I nail it. I did such a fabulous job because I'm one of these people who learn and adjust. I learn. And the board said, oh, my goodness, Andrew, this is like night and day. We want you. We want you. And I said, oh, thank you. I'm not interested. They were like, what do you mean you're not interested? I said, I'm not interested in becoming the CEO of this hospital. I said in a very nice professional way, and I really meant it. Not at that hospital. I was not interested.
0: You knew who yes, you I were. Yes, I myself knew you that I could do it. Yeah. No, you you made you, you understood at that point I time, understood. How you I, right, did I did better. But, I right. understood. Yeah. When
1: you be CEO, you have to have a very good working relationship with your board chair. That I did the second time. I didn't do right the first time. You know, and there are other things in terms of key physicians and presidents of the unions and all that type of stuff. And you know, the mayor, the city council. You know, all these things I learned from what I didn't do right the first time. So the second time I nailed it and I knew I was nailing it.
0: So let me ask you this. And there's a lot. We're both part of the National Association of Health Services Executives, or NASI for short. And I want you to look back, meaning, and talk to some of our mid-careers that they're there now. They have been... You know they've gotten their MHAs, they're in roles today. And what I've heard a lot of is that they're they're getting stuck, whether it's in the managerial world, the the director world or whatnot, talk to them about how to elevate to that next level if they need to go there or think through what you just said. You, you need to under, understand the role and the responsibilities so it may be something that it's not for you.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, I had members of my executive team who said, "I'm not interested in being the CEO or the CEO. I like what I'm doing, and I'm going to become the expert in marketing or the expert in HR or the expert in something." And they had no inclination to go. They said, "I don't want it." Um, So I was, I would say to me, a careerist is that if you do not have the skill set that is needed to move to the executive level you need to figure out how to get it. If you're in an environment where the person you directly report to is not interested in showing you things, then you can get it outside. One of the things that I did early in my career, I was so young, but I I did a lot. And while I was in DC, I was president of Young Catholic Minister group, the women's group, uh, chairman of the board of the Lupus Foundation of, of DC. So it was a lot. And so I would say, You can gain that skill set outside of your job. If you volunteer to serve on a non-for-profit board, you can join the finance committee, learn how to create a budget, learn how to monitor it. You can become the chair. You can can learn a lot of skills in a volunteer role that you don't have the opportunity in your pan job. The other thing I would do, I would say, if you're really interested in something, ask for the job description. These are simple things that we don't think about. See what it is that they're asking for, for the person that occupied that position. See if somehow you can range to have an interview with a person who's in a position that you may be interested in. People usually say yes. You know, yes, yes, you can have a meeting, you know. And you can just say, you know, I just want, you know, some career advice. And I won't take no more than 30 minutes of your time. When you get in, you stop at 25 minutes. And you make sure you leave at 30 minutes because people will remember it, that you stay true, you know, to your time. And I would say join professional organizations. I joined a lot of professional organizations early in my career, did a lot, became known in D.C. Oh, that's Andrea from Children's. That's how people refer to me. And so I think, um, again, you begin to be known and make sure you work on those committees Because people like to refer people for jobs that they know. If nobody knows you, they're not going to refer you. And so if you can't get promoted within your organization, maybe it's time for you to get promoted in another organization. And the way to do that, people have to know who you are.
0: That is sage advice, Uh, very much so. And I know you have done that. You have learned through your time. You know, in the C-suite, you're taking your time now. You can choose your path, and I, and I love that about you know how you're living your life now. Is there anything that I missed? Is there something that you would like to uh, tell the the audience that you, you know I might find interesting? interesting they may find inter- interesting that you want you want to go ahead and convey. It? This is your moment. Sure. Well, I gave a little teaser
1: earlier when I talked about um, my second semester of graduate school that I became really ill and I was told that I was going to die. Well, when I got to D.C. and because I had an excellent physician, I decided I need to learn more about this disease that I have. And so I want these people When I don't know anything, I investigate and I research. And so I did. I found out there was a chapter. I joined a chapter, ended up becoming the chairman of the board. And because I was chairman of the board, the Lupus Foundation of America asked me if I would be their national spokesperson. So I became the national spokesperson. So as the national spokesperson, I represented them. So I used to have meetings at NIH with the famous Dr. Anthony Fauci.
0: No way!
1: And yep, yeah, I used to go to his office. It, I had no idea who he was. Okay, so anyway, so we would meet at NIH, and then the um, executive director, of the allergy and uh, asthma foundation of america there were three organizations i can't think of the third one that would go and meet with him and talk about well what is the research you know that's going to help people that have these type of diseases as a result of that i ended up going to a congressional budget committee representing the lupus foundation of america to advocate on behalf it was recorded in the Federal Register and everything, my remarks, to advocate that NIH receive additional budget funds in order to advance research for autoimmune diseases, right? right. While I was there at the congressional hearing, there were two other people waiting with me to speak. One was we- William Shatner from the Star Trek series. <laughs> the other one was someone I really admired, Dr. Um, Mary Frances Berry. Dr. Barry was Berry. the secretary of education under President Clinton. At the time I met her, she was the chair of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. And she was there because her niece was 21 years old and died from lupus. And she was there advocating money for the research for lupus. And so we got to talking. I'm thinking, OK, Andrew, just calm down. Because I, I really admire this woman. And so, um, of course, she took the show. They bowed down to her. And I'm thinking, I gotta go speak after this woman, you know, because they had us lined up. And so I did, I, you know, I, you know, did it. And afterwards, she said, Would you like me to drop you off at home? I was like, uh, I was just gonna take the subway. And she said, sure. we got to talking. She told me all, all about her knees, you know, how devastated they were. She died from lupus. And she was asking me all these questions about me and lupus. You know, because I mean, well, I was 24, 25, you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, how I was holding up and all that type of stuff. And uh, so that's something someone doesn't know. And then the last thing I was saying, because I was a national spokesperson for the Lucas Foundation America, I was interviewed on the Time Broke Off ABC Evening News. Is that right? Two minutes. Now, you know it's only 30 <laughs> minutes. and you usually get right, 30 right. They gave me two minutes. They sent a whole production crew to my house in D.C., Follow me around, interviewed me, had my daughter who was two years old. They were fascinated that she knew how to read certain words, and they filmed her and she was on TV reading to me. I mean, not reading, reading, but you know, yeah. Apple, Car, you know, that's right, like, right. how she's only two years old. How is she able to do this? I was thinking, I thought y'all were interviewing me about Lucas and follow me <laughs> around, but it was all good. So though I would say that is something that very little people know
0: about me. That is a wonderful, wonderful story. I am so impressed. I've been more impressed after this interview, just hearing the things that you have gone through and that you've done it at such a high, high level. And you've taken your personal brand from the very beginning, all the way from Flint, Michigan, yes. <laughs> to Atlanta, back up to to, to Lansing, Michigan, to Tulane, to, to which is New Orleans, to D.C. Yeah. I hear you're making your home again back in the Midwest. And this has been wonderful. And I, I'm so, so thankful that you took the time to, to join us on Follow the Brand. We're going to air this in, in a few weeks. And I think it's going to be wonderful for our audience to truly tune in and take away the gems that you have laid about what a what a true brand is is how you live your life, and you've been living it very, very. Good how, life. And
1: how others see you. So absolutely, you know, definitely. Once you set that standard, you have to maintain it.
0: That's it—the gold standard—and you've done that. You're shining very, very brightly. So, thank you very much.
1: Yep. And thank you for inviting me. It was my pleasure.
0: You're welcome. Talk to you later.
1: Okay. Bye bye.